listening to The Worried Writer, helping you to overcome fear, self-doubt and procrastination to get the work done. I'm your host, Sarah Painter, and I'm a novelist and self-confessed worried writer. For show notes, resources and much more, please head to worriedwriter.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 16 of The Worried Writer. I'm recording this on the 30th of May 2016, and although it's cloudy, it's shaping up to be another warm day here in Fife. My guest today is Cheska Major. Cheska is a fascinating interviewee as she straddles two genres with two different names. Cheska's debut historical novel, The Silent Hours, was published last year by Corvus to great acclaim, but she also writes romantic comedy under the name Rosie Blake. I also think it's a very useful interview, as Cheska has lots of excellent practical tips. In personal news, I'm feeling a wee bit rough today, so please forgive any tiredness you can hear in my voice. My husband has had a rotten, sore throat and cold for a few days, and he appears to have kindly passed it on. However, yesterday was gloriously sunny, and my kids and I went for a walk to the next village along from us, on a green path which leads between fields, and we got ice cream cones... Also, I'm taking this Friday off to drive down to the beautiful Brecon Beacons in Wales with my husband for a friend's wedding. I'm really looking forward to it and will try to take some photos and pop them on Instagram and my blog at sarah-painter.com forward slash blog. It does mean that I'm having a shorter working week though, so I'm trying to get lots done beforehand. I'm determined to finish the rewrite of my urban fantasy fun project by the end of June, and that means at least 2,000 words a day. I'll report back in the next episode to let you know whether I managed it. I'm also very excited to announce that I'm dipping my toe in hybrid publishing. I love audiobooks, and I'm delighted with having the audiobook of In the Light of What We See available uh, through my publisher, Lake Union. So, I have decided to get The Language of Spells made into one. If all goes well, I will get The Secrets of Ghosts, and probably The Garden of Magic made too. I'm using ACX, which is a platform which connects people who own audio rights to books such as publishers and authors with narrators and audiobook production companies. I first heard about ACX via the wonderful Joanna Penn at The Creative Pen, and I've also read Simon Whistler's excellent guide to the subject, Audiobooks for Indies. I'm listing the book on the site today and will hopefully get some narrators submitting auditions. I'm going to commission cover art too, as I can't use the cover art from the ebook or paperback version, as that is owned by HarperCollins. That's okay though, audiobook covers are very different dimensions, so it makes sense to have a different cover designed anyway. I will let you know how the project is progressing next time, and if you're interested, do let me know. I will write some blog posts on the subject on the Worried Writer site. And as always, if there is anything at all you would like covered on the show, do get in touch. If you have a specific question you like answered, email me at sarah at worriedwriter.com or find me on Twitter. On to this episode's listener question. This is from Gina, who sent me a very nice email about the show and asked, Do you feel it is important to be a part of any writers or artists associations? Aside from any conferences or networking benefits there may be, do you think it makes a difference simply having on your resume or submissions? Would it actually help someone get their foot in the door? Some people seem to feel it's only your story that will get you published, and others seem to feel that having that badge helps to make you seem more serious or professional. Thoughts? I do have thoughts on this, so I'm super glad you asked, Gina. 
My opinion is that the only two things that will get you a foot through the door with either an agent or a publisher is writing a good book and persevering. If you look at it from an agent or publisher's point of view, the only way they get to stay in business and and keep their job is by taking on clients who will make them money. That sounds very hard-nosed, but of course all people who are in publishing, such as agents and editors, love books. But they do need to take on projects that will be successful. When they receive a submission, the only thing that's going to encourage them to take it further is if they think that book will sell. And that means sell in the current market, which is why I put perseverance in there. Timing does play a part, and if you keep going, then you give yourself the best possible chance of hitting the right timing. Having said that, agents and editors are human beings, and of course they will also be looking for writers who appear professional and as if they will be good to work with. I do think it's important to do your research and make sure you're sending submissions to appropriate agents only, and that your covering letter is error-free and professional in tone. However, I don't think that the badge of belonging to a writer's association is necessary for you to appear professional or serious. If you want to join them for other reasons, then by all means mention them in your covering letter, of course. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I've been through the whole submission to agents thing twice and I didn't belong to any professional associations or have any contacts in the industry. I've also watched many of my writer friends snag agents and publishing deals and none of them had any special kind of way in. Thanks again, Gina. I really hope that helps. If you're listening and you disagree or have had a different experience, do feel free to comment on the post at worriedwriter.com or tweet using the hashtag worriedwriter. Before we get to the interview section, I just want to thank a few folk on Twitter for their support. There's Liz Hewitt, who is at Kitty1988, Susan Mann, who is at Susan K. Mann, who said, looking forward to listening to another fab podcast from Sarah Painter. Thanks so much, Susan. Karen Ross, who's at Comedy Karen. Cass Green, who's at Cass Green Writer, who said, always feel inspired by this podcast. Thank you, Cass. And Anne Cater, or Cater, who is at Anne Cater, which is C-A-T-E-R. And thank you to you for listening. If you could spare a moment to subscribe to the podcast or leave me a rating on iTunes, that would be fabulous. But please do keep listening, rating, recommending and sharing the podcast. And now on to the interview section of the show. Jessica Major's debut historical novel, The Silent Hours, was published last year by Corvus to great acclaim. However, Cheska also writes romantic comedy under the name Rosie Blake. The first Rosie Blake book, How to Get a Love Life, was originally published by Novelicious Books and was then picked up by Corvus as part of a three-book deal. The second book, How to Stuff Up Christmas, came out last year and the third, How to Find Your First Husband, is out on the 2nd of June. Welcome to the show, Cheska, and thank you so much for joining me. Not at all. Thank you for having me. We've actually known each other online for a wee while because uh, we both work on the, or worked on the brilliant book site Novelicious, but it's wonderful to finally speak to you. Um, I wondered if you could just break the ice with the audience by telling us a wee bit about your latest release. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, as you say, out in June, How to Find Your First Husband by Rosie Blake. Um, it's I love this book. It's one of my favourites I've ever written, actually, mostly because it's set um, it, on a tropical island in Malaysia, which really wasn't a hard research jaunt. Um, so it's about a girl who marries a boy in the playground aged eight. And essentially, 20 years later, when life has gone completely 
sort of AWOL and she's wondering what she's doing dressed as a prawn, giving out fish leaflets in an LA supermarket. She decides that life would have been a lot better if she'd married that boy and stayed married to him um, and stayed in England. And she spots him in the background of a news item and essentially goes on a massive global search to track the poor boy down. And uh, we find out whether she meets him and what happens to her and whether you know she should have actually married Andrew Parker. Oh, wonderful. That sounds great. Um, I'm really, really curious about your double life. As I've mentioned in the intro, you write as both Cheska Major and Rosie Blake. Um, could you tell me how that came about? And, um, you know, when you, because your first book, I think, was Rosie Blake. So did you already know you wanted to write things under Cheska as well? Or Yeah, so it happened. I suppose lots of writers have this need to write in different genres and they are completely different. I think Rosie Blake is the really commercial, light, fluffy end of of chiclet, I suppose, and I'm really proud of calling it that. Um, and it's great fun. And Cheska Major um, is sort of these quite well-researched historical novels. They're, they're based on true events. I'm fictionalising things that have happened to people. And I suppose, in a way, my personality is split because I used to be a fluffy TV presenter and I used to work on live um, bingo shows and shopping TV. Um, but I also um, became a history teacher um, and taught secondary pupils history. So I suppose I've always had it in me, these two sort of personalities, um, I originally wrote rom-coms um, and How to Get a Love Life was picked up. Um, and then uh, after two rom-coms, I decided that I did want to experiment. And I wrote um, the first draft of The Silent Hours, um, which was then taken up um, as well. So it was, inc- I mean, incredibly lucky, really. <laughs> um, it was lovely having two lives. Um, and actually, I love The Light and the Dark. It now really works. that I write um, one light, one dark, one light, one dark. And that's how my year goes. So for me, it's it's just been incredible to be able to write in both. Um, and yeah, that's how it's happened. That's fantastic. Um, and I completely agree with you. There are lots and lots of authors do actually want to write in more than one genre or have more than one sort of book bubbling away. But I'm just so impressed how you've managed to write so many books in sort of a relatively <laughs> short, short time um, and so many great books. And so I want your secret. Come on, Jessica, fess up. <laughs> Well, are you a clone? <laughs> you don't have to <laughs> The first secret is, yeah, something does have to give, I think. Uh-huh. Um, I'm lucky in that actually, um, because I have a full time job, I mean, as a teacher, I have very long holidays. So originally, um, it came to the point where I'd get to a holiday and I knew that if I didn't write to that holiday, that nothing would get done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that's very motivating, actually, to have a three week break where you know that's it. Um, and you've got however many thousand words you want to write or however many thousand words you want to edit. Um, so that was really motivating. Um, and then actually um, my school were very kind and let me um, give up teaching and I'm a housemistress. So I now write in a day at school as well. Um, so it did become more of a full time job. Um, but yeah, I mean, my big my big tips are always um, chunks of time. Um, there's something called the Pomodoro technique, which some people have heard of, where you time yourself and you have breaks. For me, it was always hour-long chunks. I call them word races. Um, I tend to race myself if there's no one around, but I tend to throw it out on Twitter um, saying, um, you know, one hour, nothing else. Um, You're not allowed to pick up the phone, answer an email, clean the house, make yourself a cup of tea, nothing. You just have to sit at your desk and uh, and write. And it's hideous sometimes. The first five minutes are awful and you're just sitting there writing, I hate writing. (laughs) Why am I here? Am I chained to my desk? And and then, of course, you know, your brain kicks in. Um, and funny, when you read the first draft back, you can't remember which bits you laboured over for four hours and which bits 
you splurged out in a sort of mad dash because um, you've obviously got to edit. And I think when you write more books, I, I feel that you you I think that a lot of worry of first time writers is they have to make it perfect on that first go. And I think you let that go once you realise that you're going to, frankly, be rereading it again a number of times and other people are going to be telling you it's horrible and you need to change it. Um, and that, and actually, that's very freeing because then you can just think, well, I can go back to this. I can, you know, I can write something else. So, yeah, for me, it's chunks. It's sitting down. I'd rather do an hour's chunk and have an hour off than sit at my desk sort of for the whole morning looking out of the window. <laughs> no, that's great advice. That's great. And like you say, the kind of the uh, realization or recognizing the fact that it truly doesn't have to be right first time because you're going to be going over it <laughs> and yeah, many, I many know. times. That's <laughs> it. The, the, for me, I don't know about you, but um, I love I love writing first drafts. Uh-huh. Actually, I really enjoy them. Um, the, the characters are new. You're getting to know them and all of that. My, my the hardest stage I find is that end of the first draft, that structural edit where you're looking at the book as a whole um, and you're moving things around. And um, I find that you need some real concentration and dedication to sit there and do that. Whereas I think other people love that stage and, and, and don't like the, the, the silly stuff at the end where you're fixing spelling, which I love as a teacher. It's like my favourite bit. Just get out the red pen, mark my own work. Um, so it's funny which stage you, you start to get to know which stage you're going to find harder. And to go back to the beginning, uh, when you first got started, were you worried at all? Did you have any sort of uh, procrastination or or self-doubt issues with it? Uh, Listeners uh, can't see this, but Jessica is is smiling widely here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, oh, absolutely. Mm. Um, I mean, it took, as much as you're saying I've written a lot of books, I've been writing really since 2003. So I've put the time in. Um, So I started the moment I left university in earnest. Uh-huh. And I, the biggest mistake I suppose I made at the beginning, I felt that to be a proper writer, you had to research a book. And I spent hours reading, watching films. I went to France for the silent hours. Um, I, I didn't think I wrote anything for about six months. I think I just thought that as a proper writer, I should really get to know everything about, you know, I became basically a complete um, World War II French specialist. And A, I don't have the luxury of that anymore. And B, it actually ended up stopping me because I wanted to put in so much research and interesting facts that, frankly, aren't very interesting to the reader at all, um, that I forgot that I actually had to write uh, a gripping novel with central characters that you are rooting for and a plot that's driven forward rather than me going, oh, listen to this interesting thing I've learned about the world (laughs) world. Um, so yeah, for me, it was, it was that, that I, re- I mean, I really pr- procrastinated and I thought I was doing myself a favor, um, when actually a lot of it, you, you just need to sit down and, and you can fill in a lot of things as you go along. So I've got incredibly efficient compared to those first few years. Um, and frankly, being rejected, um, is hideous and you, you have months where at the start, I think where you really, you know, you lose faith, you don't think it'll, it'll ever happen. And there were two things I think that really got me out of that. One was, um, I have to say, was Twitter and social media. The knowledge other people were going through the same thing. Podcasts like this one where I would listen and think, you know, this person's done this and been there. Um, writing articles and things like your Monday column on Novelicious I used to find incredibly helpful. Um, so that was an incredibly helpful thing. Um, and the other thing was I'm um, entering short story competitions um, because I had some success there. And that really cheers you up. So you start to think, okay, well, you know, that story came third or that story won 200 quid or 
And I think you get the sense that A, you're part of the community, B, it's it's positive rather than that next letter from that agent telling you, no, you know, you write really well, but this isn't for us. Um, and that for me, those two things really helped me keep going. And and frankly, you just get bitten by the bug. <laughs> just think of another book idea and have to write it. So Absolutely. And you mentioned social media there, and I completely agree with you. Um, did you join any writers groups and things like that as well? Or was your... Um, your community just uh, online through social media it was mostly through social media and actually the group obviously that you mentioned was novelicious um, was another load of you know people that were blogging and um, reviewing books and loved books and, and were readers I mean fundamentally every person that works at novelicious is a reader and loves books and wants to promote books and that was really inspiring and being in a group where we all then secretly admitted that we were all writing our own book uh, <laughs> it very long to work it out um, that was really, really motivating. But there are some brilliant ones now on Facebook of constant conversations. Um, so I'm a member of the Bookshop Cafe and things like that, where people post photos and comment on books they're reading. And it's just lovely to be part of that world where um, you're, discuss- you're discussing novels and, and it's, it's lovely. It's like a big book club online. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, I do find sometimes, though, on Mostly I find it entirely positive, but just occasionally I think on a bad day, if I'm feeling particularly um, feeble. (laughs) (laughs) Always someone doing better than you. (laughs) I was just going to say there can be that sort of either comparing thing, either they're doing better or they just seem more confident. Everybody seems more confident to me, but you know what I mean. Um, So I don't know whether how you handle that sort of bad day. Yes, I I completely agree that there will always be a book that is being shouted about and you're sitting there thinking, where's my book? Why are you not shouting about my book? Um, And I think I'm a bit philosophical about it in that, A, I always do think, I bet they've gone through such a hideous process to get there. So actually, I really think writers are supportive of other writers because they know it takes a lot of discipline and you do sacrifice things in your life to write a book. And I, I have nothing but admiration for people that want to do it. Um, so that helps. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then I'm mostly I think, well, at least people are buying books and they're excited about books. And if they're buying that book, then they're looking at other books. And I, I just think it can only be a good thing for all of us. Yeah. So, no, I'm reasonably I'm reasonably OK with it. Um, yeah, obviously. Um, you don't, then, then you also you can go and cheer yourself. Go and look at their one star reviews. Just <laughs> yourself up. Everyone's got them. So uh-huh. and they're, my, they're my most fun thing to read. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I love it. <laughs> I always remind myself that um, that as a reader, uh, I can. There's only a certain speed at which I can write, and that's quite slow. But even a very fast writer cannot write books as fast as their most avid reader can read them. Mm. So, as you say, readers are a good thing for everybody. <laughs> and yeah, if someone I mean, likes a book that's similar to yours, that's that is only a good thing. Even on your worst day, that's only a good thing. I agree. And readers are very loyal. I mean, it's lovely. Um, Rosie Blake, you know, she's got this book out in June and I know how much fun it will be to to promote it and to get blog tours and to talk about it. And I'm always I'm so touched by people that actually are bothered about the next read. Um, (laughs) It really is incredible feeling, actually, that people want to read your next your next book. Um, and, and yeah, that, that is really magical. So I think people are lovely with it. And, and like you say, you can't read everything, as we both know. Um, we get sent all sorts of things. And um, it, it's, re- it's really hard yourself. You feel very aware that you're not reading enough. Um, and you're probably reading a lot more than the average person. But um, 
it's still never enough. You still want to read more. On the subject of never enough, and I'm glad you mentioned Rosie again because that reminded me, um, how on earth do you do everything? I've already asked you how on earth you write so many books, but you have to maintain these two different personas on social media, as you mentioned them, blog tours. And to be quite frank with you, I struggle with one and the worried writer. How on earth do you do it? Um, I, I just sound hideous in this interview. <laughs> really over-efficient. Um, I think... My <laughs> no, I big, love it. <laughs> my big, big thing, and this is definitely not the case with lots of writers, is I genuinely enjoy um, publicity, uh, promotion, um, talking to readers, uh, chatting on Twitter, chatting on Facebook. Um, I'm really lucky because that's an aspect of it that I embrace and think is great fun. Uh, whereas I know other writers, it's actually it's quite an effort um, to to get out there to 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 feel that they you know are wasting time as it were not writing but actually um, sort of doing a blog post worrying that no one's going to read it or whatever. So I think it's I'm very lucky in that it, it comes quite naturally to me because frankly I'm a big chatterbox and got nothing better to do in my time than go online and um, chat to people. Um, so that really really helps. But I, again, I enjoy the difference. It's such fun being Rosie Blake and Cheska Major because Cheska Majors is very sensible. She, she's very into writing tips. And um, I write, you know, I, I, Twitter is always promoting books that I've read or, or, or interesting sort of things that people have said about writing. Um, whereas Rosie Blake is much more sort of um, watching television and commenting on whatever's on or Poldark's bare chest or <laughs> cream eggs that have got the wrong chocolate or whatever it is. And, um, and she's my excuse, actually, just to, to really enjoy Twitter and, and then that side of it. Um, so that helps as well that you're sort of different people um, online too but yeah I think you do have to enjoy it and if you don't enjoy it um, as a writer because you do need to do some publicity then perhaps you do need to think about what what it, what does suit you so is it is it a podcast or is it a blog or a blog or a website that you really love mm -hmm. or is it is it you know looking at the settings of all your books or I think you should probably try to think of something if you really really don't enjoy just chit-chatting to people um but yeah you, you you have the reality is as you know is is we all have to do stuff to promote our own books and try to help get them out there as well so mm, no that's great advice um but yes you do make it look very easy uh, <laughs> thanks that's kind it doesn't feel like it sometimes and also of course you do the wonderful vlogs for the writers and artists uh website so are you still doing those I'm just, I'm literally just about to start filming um, a very pregnant <laughs> vlog on editing. Um, yes, I've just, I've done 20 on writing, which I loved. Um, and I'm about to do 20 on editing, um, which I found harder actually um, to plan because I think I find editing so complicated. Mm. And I do think it's actually, yeah, quite helpful. I, I love vlogs because I used to be a TV presenter um, and I really love that medium. Um, I'm not great at blog posts. So um, for me, it's much easier to talk to people directly. Um, and I myself watch them and, and sort of enjoy picking up tips in that way. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I will be back with an editing one uh, towards the mid middle of the year, basically. Wonderful. Well, I will put a link in the show notes and I highly recommend them to everyone listening. Um, and I also love either podcasts or vlogs um, as a way of learning. Um, and I really enjoy um, the way that you do talk directly. You're very natural and very helpful and very clear. Um, and I also agree that talking about editing is much harder. When I get asked advice for editing, it's it, I end up writing screeds and screeds and screeds when some 
some writing craft questions are, are easier to answer succinctly. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I think people really experiment with their own editing process. Uh-huh. This is why it's just, the series is helpful because essentially I've stolen a load of different things that I don't necessarily always do um, or I've tried and it hasn't worked for me, but someone else has sworn by it. Um, so yeah, that's been really interesting because I think people really approach it in very different ways. Some people edit as they go, other people at the end. Um, some people look at themes and pull out things. You know, it's it's a really um, personal process actually. And in terms of staying creative over the long haul, um, again, you were saying that there are the two sides and the the two genres, which kind of. From what you were saying, it suggested that they kind of feed each other a wee bit because you get to refresh yourself, as it were, by by changing to you know from a rosy story to a a Cheska story. But do you have any other uh, tips, really, for staying creative? Yeah, I think um, reading. I think if you if you lose that, if you lose reading in your own genre, out, but really also outside your own genre, and perhaps challenging yourself to read things that people recommend that aren't necessarily your cup of tea or reading things that have done really, really well and looking at why that is, I think that helps you. Um, So certainly you need a break, uh, a mental rest, actually. So I have, uh, I'm I'm in a mental rest at the moment, actually. (laughs) So I'm actually catching up on some reading this week. Um, And it's just lovely. Um, And giving yourself time, so not rushing at a book idea, but maybe sitting and and really thinking of a number of book ideas um, and actually you know in spending time going for a swim going for a walk um talking them through with someone um helps me to make sure that I'm not just panicking and then choosing that quick thing that I've thought of because that's it's a long time to stay with with one idea and um and sometimes you can't sustain that for 90,000 words as well so you do need to check your idea (laughs) make sure that it's got legs um but yeah I have various um things I fill out character questionnaires and I do have a plot sheet that I love, um, which sort of gives me a sense of of where the conflict is and and what sort of what's going to go on really mm-hmm. throughout the book. And that sometimes can help me really focus on on sort of where it's headed. Um, but yeah, I think reading, watching films, and actually having a life, trying to <laughs> trying to see people, um, it's amazing. You just need to be refreshed, I think. Um, and um, and like you said, for me personally, I'm really lucky because you're right that I'm excited about going back to a Cheska book after a Rosie book because they're so different. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if people don't write two genres, then maybe they should consider short stories um, as a great way of experimenting um, with something else that isn't their normal sort of genre. But, yeah. No, that's wonderful. And I, I really like the advice about test running or, or examining your book idea before you dive in and, and like you say maybe thinking of some others just to just to check um, but in in terms of process do you you mentioned a plot sheet there uh, do you do more of an outline when when you've chosen a book idea do you do extensive outlining or do you then go with the first draft get it down method um I I used to um write first draft with pretty much I mean I used to write a few bullet points ahead of the ahead of it and then write uh-huh. and I got myself into problems really with that process so I now um I have sort of taken um the beat sheet in Save the Cat which is a fabulous um script writing book um it really works for me um to and it it divides up your book into sort of about 14 sort of key points um, and I use that now quite regularly to look at a plot and see if it has sort of what I want from it. 
Um, there are others. I mean, there's a very simple one called the lock principle, which I found incredibly helpful um, from another book called um, Write Fiction. Uh-huh. And that simply says you need a lead, you need an objective, you need to fling a load of conflict at them as they're trying to get their objective, and then you go for a knockout ending. And they call it the lock principle. So it's lead, objective, conflict, knockout. <laughs> And and I think even that um, I don't I don't do extensive beyond one A4 sheet um, I don't and I know that things change I know secondary characters can suddenly become incredibly important um, so I do stay reasonably flexible but yes I like to know that the bare bones of I like to know the beginning and the end essentially mm-hmm. um, and and then we see where we go. Um, and it's helped a bit. I mean, I still, I still think you, you know, there's always spanners in the works. You always end up thinking, oh, come on, I've written this my sixth book. Surely it's going to be so easy now. Um, and it's incredible how even every book seems to fling up different problems, different phases that you didn't even expect to find difficult. Um, I'm always amazed by it. <laughs> Slash depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that experience has helped, though, in terms of knowing, OK, I've been at this stage before, I, I remember that I felt this way, or does it change so much that it's no help at all? <laughs> no, definitely. I think mm-hmm. you know you can finish a book. Uh-huh. Um, you know that um, actually, as much as it sounds like a huge number of words, strangely, um, you know, you plod along and you watch, the, that word count just does go up and um, and you get there in the end. Um, it is it is frustrating. I think um, it's up to you if you're someone who needs to sit there and flog it out or whether, frankly, for that day, you just go and buy an ice cream, go for a walk and pretend that you're an ice cream seller or <laughs> that you are a traveling and you don't write books. Um, I think, um, yeah, for me, if I'm having a really, really awful day, I think probably I wouldn't I wouldn't sit there soldiering on. I think I'd probably go and do something else with my time. Um, I do find walking or having a shower or not thinking about it, but thinking about it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, really, really helps you um, in a really nice way. So you can get excited about it. But at the end of the day, yeah, if you're having a bad day, <laughs> don't beat yourself up too much. Um, yeah. Have a cream egg. <laughs> that sounds very healthy. I like that approach. That's good. That's my kind of self-care. Have a cream egg. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Actually, we used to, um, the worst, I, I went on a writing retreat and um, we used to have a phrase that just said, um, we'll, we'll just insert monkey here. And basically, I, I used to fix scenes. If I was stuck on a scene, I used to put a comedy animal in it um, because everyone loves animals. And I used to just be, it used to tell you a lot about the character, how they react. So I basically got to the end of the first draft of this quite sensible book. And I had things like parrots in it, random dogs that turned up, cats that didn't go anywhere. Um, And it it just became a bit of a joke. But sometimes actually just putting in a small child or an animal (laughs) tends to to cheer you up and make that scene a bit more fun. And, you know, you move on. (laughs) I think you might have said something about that maybe on Twitter or possibly a novelicious um, in our group. I'm not sure because I've got a feeling that I was stuck. And I remember thinking, I'm sure Cheska suggests that you put an animal or a child in now. And I did. And it really helped just to carry on writing because it it showed me how the other characters reacted to that thing. And as you say, and yeah, so thank you for that. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, there you go. So insert, insert monkey here became the genuine. And actually, I have got a lot of monkeys in How to Find Your First Husband. <laughs> so I'm not sure whether that's deliberate or not. But, um, and then you thought, well, I better set it somewhere where that can happen. Yeah, yes. It, it, <laughs> monkeys are more likely in Malaysia than they are exactly in France in World War II. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you went, oh, that'll be a rosy book then after. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've got to tailor your animal. <laughs> So in terms of Cheska, um, are you able to talk about what's next from her? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's very exciting. I've just handed in um, a, 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 the last edit. I'd love to say it is the last edit. I think I'm suspicious it's probably got another one ahead of it. Um, but that's out in November. It's called The Last Night. Uh-huh. Um, it's a dual narrative. So it's um, a modern uh, present day story with an antique furniture restorer who receives a bureau uh, becomes very unsettled by this bureau, um, really haunted by it. Um, sort of odd things happen. She sees things um, and, and recognises that there's a story here and essentially tracks down what happened behind this story. It's very... And, um, and, and then goes to off. And we, we see the 50s story in Devon um, and what happened to this girl um, and who this bureau basically belonged to and, and, and the secret there. And this girl in the 50 gets, uh, 50s gets uh, sort of embroiled in, in quite a sort of interesting event. Um, and, and we find out what happened to those two women. So it's a, it's a bit of a mystery. Wonderful. In and, and now. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And I really love the 50s. That's really interesting. And is yeah, it set on a real real life event again, like the Silent Towers? It is very much. It's set uh, an event um, that happened in Devon in the early 50s in North Devon. So, yes, it's all a fictionalising, a true event again. Um, and it was, um, yeah, it's, it's a really another quite sad story, really, of a number of people that were caught up in, in something that happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's someone in the modern day discovering um, discovering what happened because it, it sort of lay, lay asleep for all those years. No one really knows. So, so which comes first for you? Do you... Uh... Do you sort of have a character or a setting or a, a vague idea and then you do your research and you find, um, through that research, you find an event that you then hang your book upon? Or do you start with the historical event and then start to extrapolate a, a novel from that? Um, definitely the latter. I, I'm a history teacher, love my historical stories, um, and it's always the event. And normally there is someone in it, and there's a very obvious person in The Last Night um, that had to be written about, and The Silent Hours as well. For me, it was there was an obvious person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I started to think about how they would react and what happened to them. And so it really stems from from an event, but thinking about normally sort of someone who's been through it and, and, and someone that I, normally a, w- a woman, I have to say, who I sort of relate to, um, and then I build the rest of the the plot around it. So yeah, in both both cases, it's been that. So wonderful. And in terms of writing historical fiction, um, do you have any tips for research or for writing historical fiction? Yeah, so I think I've you know, definitely mentioned before to not get too bogged down in mm-hmm, research. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm better now at setting a scene somewhere, and then if I, I think I have to check a historical fact, I would I would write an asterisk and might say something like, you know, do, do, is this invented yet, or would they say this? Um, I leave myself notes basically to remind myself um, to check 
um, you know, whether that is accurate. I wrong my dad a lot who got really offended because he thought, <laughs> he thought he was young to be asked questions. Um, but he did help me with, with things in the 50s. And my mum is a French speaker. So for the silent hours, I checked with her. But yeah, so I think um, I think don't get obsessed with um, of doing too much research at the beginning. Probably start writing. Think about your story. Um, and as you go along, you can check those facts. Um, but but also do read widely, um, read books that aren't necessarily um, big, big, you know, historical books about what's going on in global politics. For me, it's more I read, for instance, um, the Nella Last Diaries, which are these um, a housekeeper, really, who wrote a brilliant set of diaries all through the uh, Second World War and after. Um, and she gives you, obviously, some brilliant ideas about um, setting what they got up to, food, drink, uh, relationships with people, how they speak. Um, their their worldview really, um, and I found them those were those were the kind of things that I found so helpful to add those little details that take you to that place without um, forcing your reader to sort of read long bits of information about history when frankly you know they, you know, they don't care. <laughs> That's it. You're not writing a nonfiction history no, book, exactly. so you yeah. want the the human details. But I love those Nella Last books. I'm yes. glad you mentioned those; they're wonderful. Yeah, yeah and she I, really, she's amazing. Yeah, and you're reading you're reading a first hand account. That's the other thing. I yeah, think it's important. Really. You like you say the way people speak and so on, and and her relationship with her husband, which is hilarious in those books. You know, I mean. <laughs> You often her resentment of this man who does absolutely nothing around the house in half of it, and uh, it's very funny reading this woman who um, is stuck in a time, as it were. You can tell what she would be like nowadays. She wouldn't have had none of it nowadays. <laughs> she would have booted She'd have been out. out of there. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, a brilliant diaries exactly to get a real tone of, of a time as well. Mm. And um, because this is the worried writer. I'm afraid I'm going to drag you back and ask. You mentioned earlier that um, that editing you find the first big structural edit is not perhaps your favourite part because it's so hard. And I agree with you completely. Um, are there any other parts of the process that, or what is the pro- part of the process that's most likely that you will get blocked or that self doubt will really come in? Yeah, I think it is. It's for me, it is that stage uh-huh. because it's looking at a, a huge number of words, um, a lot of ideas, and sitting there thinking, what is the overall picture? What do I want to emphasise? And frankly, just feeling overwhelmed by it, um, and and the, and the number of small things you have to do, as well as these big things. So for me, it's it's it's. I mean, I my better process is now to make myself a list of things that I'll focus on and fix. So I might look at a character and see how they're progressing through the book. Um, it, it's very time consuming. And I think that's probably why it overwhelms me because sometimes frankly, life gets in the way and, and you are really immersed in that stage and you actually need three more hours, but you know, life happens and, and you haven't got those three hours and you have to start up again the next day. So it's a really disciplined approach um, so for me, it is it is that stage that I find incredibly difficult. However, it is the most satisfying phase when you do hand in something that is so much better than that first draft. Um, but yeah, it's 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 brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely agree with you on that. Um, so in terms of tips for dealing with it, you mentioned making a list, and I think that's quite good because you can tick off and you can see some sort of progress. Um, yeah. Do you have any other tips for that or any resources that you found particularly useful any other books that you want to mention at this stage or 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 blog posts or 
Yeah, there's um, uh, uh, Ferris, Stuart Ferris. He writes mm-hmm. a little yellow book um, on editing and he, he has, he a- approaches the editing process. It's quite time consuming because he essentially looks at it through drafts. So he says in this draft, look at your setting. Are they, are they strong enough? Are they vivid enough? In this draft, look at your characters. Is there a weak character? Is there a not really a rounded character in this draft? And he basically goes through and, and makes you read the whole book, really, um, and look for specific detail. And mm-hmm. if you have time to do that, I, I think that is an incredibly good way of editing um, because you can really make sure that you've covered every aspect of your novel. You know, Is there enough conflict? Um, have you explored that relationship enough? Um, have you looked at the setting? Have you looked at um, historical details? You know, brilliant approach if you can do it. So yeah, that's Stuart Ferris, and he's the one I use the character questionnaire from as well. Um, he's got a good website. Uh, he's F E R I S. Um, so he's he's been the most helpful. Uh, but there's no, I, I haven't got a tip for time saving. <laughs> That's no. the tragedy. I just, I can't, I can't think of a quick way to do that edit. There is no quick way. It is, it is putting in the hours, I think. Just a slog, but maybe with some cream slog. eggs. <laughs> definitely cream eggs, definitely lots of breaks um, uh-huh. and definitely thinking about it. So um, a- actively thinking, so going and having a bath, but actually deciding in the bath to think about your main character mm. and why you're not happy with something or why you feel that scene isn't working. Does it need to be there? And I, I genuinely believe that we don't allow ourselves to think enough because you feel if you're staring out of a window that you're, you know, you're just wasting time. It, it really isn't a waste of time. And I don't know about you, but I've had a number of moments in normally in the shower or driving where yes. you fix a problem. You actually have fixed it and you can't believe. And it's often subconsciously done as well. Um, and it's that wonderful moment of, I think that will work. Um, and it's done, I, as I said, in the car. I mean, so much so that I put a dictaphone in the car in the glove compartment because I got so sick of having ideas on long journeys. I had to stop and then record them. So That's anyway. a fantastic tip. <laughs> Yeah, no, I found Excellent. it really helpful. Look at that with your practical tips. Yeah, there you go. I do have some. <laughs> you yeah. do have some. No, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, so just to wrap up, um, I will obviously put all the links in the show notes. So the next book from yourself is Rosie Blake's book on the 2nd of June. Yes. And then Cheska's next book is out in November. Yeah, wonderful. Exactly. Wonderful. And where is the best place for people to find out more about you and your books? Well, I have. Uh, so obviously Twitter. I'm a big fan. So I'm Cheska Writes on, at Twitter and I'm also Rosie B Books. And my two websites, which are very complicated names, www.cheskamajor.com and www.rosieblake.co.uk. So I'm all there and I love chatting and I'm on Facebook as well. So I'm not very, I'm not particularly hard to track down online, I have to say. <laughs> Pretty much Google. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'd agree with that. I would say people can probably find you on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show and for all your great advice. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's brilliant to be here. Thanks for listening today. For show notes and links, head to worriedwriter.com. If you'd like to connect, find me on Twitter at Sarah R. Painter or use the hashtag worriedwriter. See you next time.